It's wonderful to be with everyone this morning and be able to worship God together. It's been an encouraging morning. I'm thankful for your presence and that you remember to move your clock forward and that we're here and we're here on time and didn't miss out on such a wonderful blessing to worship God together in spirit and in truth. If you're visiting with us, we want you to know as well that you're certainly our honored guest and we are very aware of the fact that there may be things that we have said or done or that we practice that may not be familiar to you, and we want to be able to tell you why we do the things that we do. We seek to follow the entirety of the New Testament, and as New Testament Christians, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, Colossians 3.17, and so you'd be a friend to ask us those questions, and we certainly will seek to be your friend in studying with you and answering any questions that you might have. I was encouraged by Daniel's singing of those songs, especially the selection and the thought that he put into that and making a theme out of the song worship this morning. He's following in his dad's footsteps because he is an excellent song leader. I'm thankful for him and the time that he has taken and the, the uh, diligence that he shows in his leading us in those songs. And for all the younger men that do that as well, I know that it can be a daunting task to get in front of such a large group, but we're a loving group. And, and I think Daniel knows that and everyone else knows that as well. And And so if you are uh, thinking about stepping out of your comfort zone, do it because I think you'll be welcomed with a loving response, encouraging you to to follow the Lord and grow in that. I thank Daniel for his leading of the songs and all those who who led in worship today as well. You know, it goes without saying that when we think of God and his revelation of himself and his will to us, that there are a lot of differences in the world. So. Certainly, there will be questions that we have. You may not, as I mentioned, be very familiar with with the New Testament and the church of our Lord that he established. So you may have an abundance of questions about what it is that we're doing and what it is that we're not doing. But even Christians have a lot of questions, and there's nothing wrong with that. We need to ask those questions. Questions are important, and they are good if they are from a sincere heart, if they have the right motivation behind them. Jesus was asked a ton of questions some of sincerity. People wanted to actually know. They wanted to better themselves. They wanted to get to heaven. Some people just hated him and wanted to trip him up. So questions are good if they're from an honest and sincere heart. But that honest and sincere heart is really important to stress because when we consider what we will this morning, a question about a certain moral thing or immoral thing for that matter, whether something is is scriptural to practice or whether we should abstain from that practice. You may have a question about some things. Maybe the topic we're going to study this morning in a moment is one of those things you've thought about. It is imperative that those questions, that those thoughts, those wonderings come from a place of honesty, sincerity, a love for the truth. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul warned about how some will depart from the faith. And he said, because they do not receive the love of the truth. If you don't love the truth, it's not going to matter. If you're asking questions because you don't really want the answers, you need to ask with a love for the truth. And if you love the truth, I think that we'll be like the Bereans in Acts 17 and verse 11, who were more fair minded than those in Thessalonica and that they gave Paul and Silas a fair hearing. They were ready to receive God's will. They just needed to test whether what Paul and Silas were saying was true. And so This love for the truth combined with an unbiased, fair hearing of a message and with the confidence that Scripture is infallible and so with the diligence of testing 
what is being said with Scripture to find out whether it is so. And then comes the last thing. We need to possess a willingness to make any necessary change. Jesus said, if you're not willing to leave all and follow him, you can't be his disciple. And brethren, that's a question we need to ask ourselves every day, even as his disciples. Do I really want it? Have I counted the cost? Because as maturity implies growth from immaturity, there are certainly things we're going to learn that we didn't know before as we go along our path to heaven. There are going to be some drastic changes we have to make. And we should never, speaking as one in this category myself, as someone who was raised in the church, as we often describe it, just take for granted that we know everything we need to know, because I may learn something very new that I need to make drastic changes about. And I'll add a, a fourth one. It's not in my outline, but I was thinking about this before I got up here. We need to have a conviction in an appreciation for God's grace, because if I ever say something from the pulpit using God's word that steps on your toes, or you ever say something to me that I need to hear that steps on my toes, and I'm not right with God, the worst thing I can do is get angry about it. We talked about that in class this morning. Larry brought up a great point about that. The worst thing I can do is get angry. The worst thing I can do is turn my ears off. The worst thing I can do is close my eyes to the scripture that's been presented to me to correct my sin. The best thing I can do is realize that that brother or sister came to me out of love. And even more important than that is for me to realize that God's grace is what the scripture is all about. And so when I'm convicted of sin and I need to make a drastic change, that's not God saying, I'm sending you to hell already. He's saying, I want you to go to heaven and you will be forgiven if you repent and you change your life. And so we need to possess a sincere love for the truth, a willingness to hear the truth with an unbiased ear and search the scriptures to find out whether these things are so. Count the cost and be willing to make those changes and pay that price and appreciate that God's grace will forgive us of all of our mistakes that we've been making in our ignorance. Maybe you this morning, I don't know, but we certainly need to make sure we have those things established. The question concerning the appropriateness of a Christian's involvement in the activity of dancing is certainly something that is raised within the church at various times, especially as our culture continues to degrade and as it becomes a wider and wider acceptance among people. We struggle as parents, as kids. Do I go to the prom this year? Would I let my ch child go to the prom this year? Or the homecoming dance or the Valentine's Day dance or or maybe a, a wedding, there's going to be dancing there. Or do I have dancing at my wedding? The, these questions come up, and they're important questions. Don't minimize it. They're important questions. And so does God allow that for a Christian? Is there something wrong with dancing? Maybe there's not, but that's a legitimate question to ask. Is it okay? Is it appropriate? Is it authorized for me to attend to dance even? to dance, to engage in it. These are questions we need to search ourselves with and search the scriptures with that in mind as well. What does the Bible say about dancing? And is it something the Christian should involve himself or herself in? Before we get any further, I want us to understand some fundamental and foundational principles that Christians are to realize before they get into any kind of study, especially of moral considerations 
such as dancing, or maybe it's immodesty, or maybe it's drinking alcohol, or maybe it's any other kind of thing. We need to understand what the Bible requires of us. Fundamentally, not in detail, but general principles that are an umbrella that cover a bunch of different things. We need to realize them and appreciate them and understand them. We recently had a study from Romans 12 where we talked about how we're to be as Christians a living sacrifice. And he says there that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And he explains the way you do that is you do not conform to the world. And so there goes that standard. And we'll address it, but our consideration of dancing should have nothing to do with what the world says about it, at least in regard to justifying our involvement in it. The world's not a standard. But instead, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. And Brett preached on this. He talked about how our mind is renewed by the Spirit through the Word of God. That's our standard. And so, as we demonstrated two weeks ago, we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And what we're proving is not that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. We know that's true. And so, what we're doing is we're seeing a topic like dancing, and we're testing it. We're putting it to the proof. That's what that word means. It, it had literally to do with uh, precious metals being tested. Are they truly pure gold, or do they have some some impurities in it. It passes through the fire and those impurities are burned away and it's genuine now. And so what we're doing is we're putting dancing to the test, but we're doing it by God's word. And that's what a Christian should do. And so before we even get further, are you trying to be conformed to this world or are we trying to be transformed? If we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind, Colossians 3 talks about how we seek Christ. We set our mind on things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. We're not setting our mind on things of the earth. We, we don't care about this world because it's going to be melted and fade away. We want to be with Christ. We died and our life is hidden with Christ and God. Colossians 3 and verse 3. And when Christ who is our life, that's what we're supposed to be. Christ is our life. When he appears, we'll appear with him in glory. And you know, all that really is summed up in verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. The name represents authority. I'm doing it by his authority. So if he doesn't authorize it, I'm not going to do it. And in a heavenward focus and perspective, that's what it's talking about. It's not just, I want to get to heaven. I want to be in heaven, but I know Jesus is there and that's where he rules from. His rules are coming down to me in the form of Holy Scripture. And so a mindset on things above is not just, oh, heaven must be wonderful. We have those thoughts. We meditate on it. We sing about it. We want to be home. But it's also, what does the king say? What does God require? As uh, Will read in the Scripture reading this morning, I appreciate him preparing our minds with that. In Romans 13 and verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So it's not enough for us to just say, I'm not going to do the works of the flesh. We've got to say, I'm not even going to get close to it. I'm not going to pro provide for it at all. I'm not going to give the opportunity for something to happen in me to fall. That's a Christian. A Christian isn't towing the line of worldliness. A Christian is towing the line of Christ and his will. Also, we need to realize we're called to give a godly influence to the world. First Peter 2 and verse 11, he says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. 
I am wanting to live according to God's will so that the Gentiles see a difference in me and ask me about it so that they can see their ungodliness is truly ungodly. And also, we need to not be concerned in that same vein of thought with what they think of us if it's a negative. And, and when we talk about, I, I don't care and I don't need to care and I shouldn't care about the, what the world thinks, well, that's not entirely true because I should think that we need to be concerned about them thinking about us in the way that he just said in verses 2 or 11 and 12 of 1 Peter 2. They need to see our good works. They need to see our conduct is honorable in God. But I don't care if they disapprove of my conduct in Christ. Shouldn't. That shouldn't sway me at all. And that's what Peter says in 1 Peter 4 and verse 4. In regard to these things, the things of the Gentiles, the fleshly lusts and such, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. And he encourages saying they're going to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Doesn't matter what they think now, they're going to answer just like you're going to answer. And so for this reason, the gospel was preached to those who are dead that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh and live according to God in the spirit. The people who have died, your brethren who have died before, they were going through the same thing. But thank God he gave them his gospel because now they're living according to God in the spirit. If you want that hope, you're not going to care what the world thinks. You only care what God thinks. And lastly, along with all of these things and adding to the introduction, we need to take heed how we hear. Luke 8 and verse 18, Jesus, after the parable of the sower, said, Therefore, take heed how you hear. And he gives a reason. Forever has to him more will be given, and whoever does not have even what he seems to have will be taken from him. I want to tell you something. Dancing is a moral topic. If you don't take heed how you hear and you go away and you decide, I'm not going to listen to what Scripture says about it. There are going to be some things that you know in your heart to be immoral. You would not tolerate for a second. But you see, that's what you have. And if you've rejected what Christ is trying to give you in another topic, that is true. You don't accept the truth. That perspective is going to degrade. Even what you think you have will be taken from you. You see that? Got to be a consistency. He who said, you shall not commit adultery also said, you shall not murder. And if a person commits adultery, but he does not murder, he has still broken the law, James 2 says. So we've got to be fair in our hearing and not ask questions as we talked about, not search scripture as we talked about to justify ourselves. In chapter 10 of Luke and verse 29, that's what the man asked about his neighbor for. He wanting to justify himself, asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor then? He didn't care about what was expected of him. He knew what he wanted to do and what he had been doing. And so he asked that question to pacify his own conscience. That's not what we're here for. We won't be able to understand anything if we don't have these foundational principles set up. It's going to be impossible. If we're a Christian, this is how we are. And so consider dancing in the Bible. Dancing is actually found in the Bible, and that's one of the first arguments for it. Why, don't say dancing sinful because I see him dancing in the Bible and not just dancing in the Bible, but worshiping God by dancing. Well, that's true and we'll see it. But there needs to be an understanding that the Bible talks about things that are godly and ungodly. The Bible takes, talks about things that are righteous and unrighteous. So it doesn't just reveal what is good. It reveals what is bad. It reveals David committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband to cover it up. It revealed that. It doesn't mean it's right. It's warning us about it. And so sometimes we have topics that include subcategories of versions that are sinful and versions that are not sinful. For example, and I plan to preach on this before long, 
Every time you see wine in the Bible, it's not intoxicating wine. Sometimes it's a blessing from God, and God doesn't bless us with matters that inhere in unsavedness, Ephesians chapter 5 talks about. And so there's passages which which speak of wine and the fact that it's not intoxicating, and therefore it is a blessing, and it's intoxicating, and it'll kill you spiritually and physically. And so when we think about dancing, yes, it's in the Bible, but that doesn't mean that all dancing is righteous. We need to be consistent in our reasoning. Considering the dancing found in the Bible, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says, and you're not going to be able to write all these down. It's available on the Internet. And so, you know, if you can't keep up, just just stop trying, because I want you to hear all of this. And I'll have several quotes. The ISB says that the dancing in the Bible is scarcely, scarcely ever mentioned as a social amusement. It says of the social dancing of couples in the modern fashion, there is no trace. Already we understand it's not the same thing. Zondervan's Pictorial Bible Dictionary, or Holman's Illustrated Bible Dictionary, getting ahead of myself, says, In summary, the dance of the Jewish people was similar to what we today call the folk dance. It was performed by both males and females, though apparently not in mixed groups. So not even mixed dancing was condoned in the Bible. And the Zondervan's Pictorial Bible Dictionary says, The Hebrew people developed their own type of dancing associated in the main with worship. Basically, it was more like modern religious shouting by individuals or processions of exuberant groups. The sexes never intermingled in it, except where pagan influences had crept in. So if you see it, it's because pagan influence had crept in, not because God sanctioned it. And what we're going to find in the Old Testament is two words that are primary in translations into dancing. Mehala and mahol, dancing in a ring, the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament says, or as Strong defines it, a round dance. And so further illustrating the Bible dancing. Holman's Illustrated Bible Dictionary says that the basic Hebrew term translated dance means to twist or to whirl about in circular motions. The ISB again says that Hebrew word employs whole and its derivatives, mahol and mahola, to denote turning or twisting or whirling. Hence, the general interpretation of round dances is given to these instances. Already, it's not the modern dance that we're familiar with. It is not anywhere close. And so there was dancing in the Bible. There was dancing in cases of rejoicing. In Judges chapter 11, we remember the account of Jephthah and how Jephthah's daughter came out to him, meeting him after the Lord had delivered the people of Ammon. She had a tambourine, and it says that she was dancing. In Judges 11 and verse 34, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. And she saw, uh, and, and she was his only child beside her. He had no son or daughter. She was rejoicing in the victory. She was rejoicing at the deliverance by God. She was dancing. But it's that word mahala. 1 Samuel 18 in verses 6 through 7 speaks about how after, remember, David was made Saul's armor bearer and he was very victorious in military advances and valor that the women were chanting and singing songs, uh, speaking of, of the nobility of, of his uh, valiant uh, uh, warring and being a warrior for God. It happened as they were coming home, David was returning from the daughter of the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities in Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and joy and with musical instruments. And they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David is ten thousands. They were rejoicing. And in Psalm 30 and verse 11, we see the expression of dancing and joy from going to a state of mourning to the state of joy and that being reflected in dancing. You have turned 
for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. And Lamentations 5.15 does the inverse of that. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned to mourning. And so they did a round dance. They whirled and leapt about out of joy and rejoicing in the Old Testament. Also in the New Testament, in Luke 15 and verse 25, considering those in a parable that would have understood to be under the old law still, but Luke 15, 25, the prodigal son came home. What a cause for rejoicing. It says his older son was in the field and as he drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. That's the Greek word chorus, which is chorus in the English. Strong says it's a ring or a round dance. And Thayer says it's a band of dancers or singers, a circular dance, a dance or dancing. It's actually the word that is used to translate in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. It's the word used to translate mahala or mahol, as we saw in the Hebrew. So there was dancing in the Bible, yes, when they rejoiced. There was also dancing in the Bible when they worshiped. Remember in Exodus 15, after the Exodus, Miriam and the women Dance. Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after with her uh, with timbrels and dances. And they answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. They were singing praises and dancing praise to God as he had delivered them. In 2 Samuel chapter 6 and in verse 14, David is seen dancing. It uses a different word, karar, in the Hebrew, but it means essentially the same thing to whirl or dance in fact in verse 6 karar is translated whirling as it's translated dance in verse 15 it says that david danced or verse 14 david danced before the lord with all his might and david was wearing a linen ephod and david and all the house of israel brought the ark of the lord shouting and with the sound of trumpet and as the ark of the lord came into the city of of david michal saul's or michal um, saul's daughter looked through the window and saw Uh, King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. In Psalm 149 and in verse 3, we see praise was done with dance. Let them praise his name with the dance and sing praises to him with the timbrel and the harp. And also in Psalm 150 and verse 4, it's used the same way. Praise him with the timbrel and the dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. That last part should tell you already that it's not a part of our New Testament worship. Old Testament authorized and prescribed and required in places and context praise and worship with the mechanical instrument, also with the dance. But we don't see it ever in the New Testament. The reason it was mentioned in the Old Testament is because God wanted it. The reason it's not mentioned in the New Testament, God doesn't want it. And we know that from Hebrews 7 and verse 14 because God never mentioned any high priest coming out of Judah. And so we know that Christ could not be a high priest after Aaron's priesthood, but according to the order of Melchizedek, not because the New Testament said you shall not be a priest in Judah, but it never mentioned it at all. And so a change of the law had to occur because of the silence of God regarding any priest out of the tribe of Judah. And so worship in spirit and truth today is not include dancing. But I want us to notice a third one, more importantly. Third one. And that's dancing to incite lust. Even in the Old Testament, that same word mahala is used to reference in context a dance that is not righteous, that is not holy, that is not pure, and that is not sanctioned by God. Remember when Moses is up on the mount and he comes down and finds them worshiping the idol in verse 6 of Exodus 32. It says, 
Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And notice this important phrase that we'll see in 1 Corinthians 10. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What was included in that though? Verse 19. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and dancing. And Moses' anger became hot. Why? He saw dancing and the calf. And he cast the tablets out of his hand, broke them at the foot of the mountain, and he took the calf which they had made, burned it in fire, ground it to a powder, scattered it on the water, and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? I realize that the greatest part of this, what abhorred God more than anything, and Moses more than anything, is they were worshiping a graven image, exactly like God said not to do. But that was an influence, especially in representation of the calf, of the cow. That was a representation of what they learned in Egypt. And the dancing is no different. The dancing that they involved themselves in in worship to Jehovah falsely, as he's represented in this calf in their mind, it comes from paganism. And verse 6 really reflects that. They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the... Uh, Tyndale commentary on the Old Testament, it says that the verb translated play suggests sex play in Hebrew. And therefore, we are probably to understand drunken orgies. Also in the ISB, again, elsewhere in the Old Testament, play, that Hebrew word sahak, may have sexual connotation. The people's breaking loose suggests that the dancing was highly sensual in this case also. That's exactly what Paul is getting at when he brings this up as an example in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 6. He says, These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, nor let us commit sexual immorality as they did. And so the dancing and the other parts of worship incorporated in their idolatrous practice at the foot of Mount Sinai was very sexual as follows the rest of the pagan traditions throughout history and was certainly condemned. I want us to notice a New Testament example of this kind of dance. In Mark, the sixth chapter, you remember Herod had his brother, Philip's wife, and John the Baptist, as a righteous preacher of the kingdom of God, bringing in the kingdom with the message of repent, for the kingdom is at hand, told Herod that you have no right to your brother Philip's wife. You are in an adulterous marriage. So he imprisoned him. And then Herodias, on Herod's birthday, was asked to dance before him. Herodias is, uh, is, uh, is, is uh, Herod's, um, uh, or Herodias's daughter, which some give the name in, in tradition as Salome, as we'll see in a moment. But she dances for Herod, Herodias's daughter. I want us to notice in Mark 6 and verse 21. An opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles and high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced, it pleased Herod and those who sat with him to the extent, notice here, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. And so she went to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. I want to tell you something. There's nothing more that could convince a man than what she did. That's the point. He would not be willing to decapitate John the Baptist. But when she gave that dance to him, something was triggered and he was willing to give her anything. And also the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, 
It says the most popular dance entertainment in the first centuries A.D. was the pantomimus, a solo enactment of a popular story themed in stylized mimicry, often with dramatic and sensual movements and postures. It has been suggested that Salome's or Herodias' daughter's dance for Herod's birthday guest was in this tradition. I think that's obviously the case. It wasn't a pure dance. It wasn't a righteous dance. It wasn't a holy dance. And so these contexts obviously show that there are dances, but they're not all equal. And there is a type of immoral and appropriate and sensual dance, which is not upheld in Scripture as righteous and accepted of God, but is condemned just like any other sin. Which one does the modern dance fit? Doesn't fit worship to God. I think we need to be honest with ourselves. You know, as we continue along with this question of dancing, we need to think about some biblical principles that this type of dance in the modern times would certainly violate and the Christians should not be a part of because of it. But we need to understand before we go further, the nature of Scripture. It's not just some list. It has lists, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, so on and so forth. But it's not written in list form. So it doesn't say thou shalt not dance. And I'm not expecting us to find a Scripture that says that. You shouldn't be either. 2 Timothy 1 verse 13 says we need to hold fast the pattern of sound words. And so it gives various principles, specifics, generalities, details, big picture items. And we take all of that together. We bring it together and we see there's a pattern that's established. Whether it's the work, worship, and organization of the church or the morality of a Christian with some specifics, but certainly some general things. And what we're supposed to do according to the word of God is grow in maturity have our senses exercised, Hebrews 5 and verse 14, so that we can discern good and evil. That's what Romans 12, 2 is talking about. You may prove what is the will of God. Dancing is not found in the New Testament in some prohibitive list. And so God requires us to test all things and hold fast to the good and abstain from evil. And so we ask, is dancing righteous? Is it something that God would allow us to do? Is it something that we should be involved in? We shouldn't stop at the fact that it never says thou shalt not dance. We should consider whether or not there are very basic and fundamental general principles in scripture that would prohibit us from engaging in an activity that is of the nature of the modern dance. So the Bible doesn't say you can't use mechanical instruments of music and worship, but we know that its silence prohibits the use of those instruments in worship. There is no authority. We know that the Bible never says you shall not have one pastor over you, but we know that it is prohibited because every time pastors are mentioned, it's in the plural. We never have an example of a singular. We know the Bible does not say you cannot smoke marijuana, nor does it have to because the Bible says we need to be sober and that would take away our sobriety. We know the Bible does not say you cannot wear a bikini. You won't find it in the New Testament, the Old Testament for that matter. But we know that we cannot wear a bikini because the Bible requires modesty, which covers nakedness. And we don't find in the Bible anywhere where it says that such and such in English is profanity. It's a cuss word. We know that there are words that we ought not say because society and our very language depicts them as profane. Even worldly people cut them out of movies at certain ratings and rate them higher with those words. But we know the Bible says that we need to not be those of filthy speech or coarse jesting. We understand these things. 
Same kind of principles apply to dancing. These general requirements or prohibitions of Scripture show that the modern dance is not something the Christian can be involved in. For example, the prohibition and condemnation of revelry. In Romans 13 and in verse 13, as we add in our Scripture reading, it says, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness. Also in Galatians 5 and verse 21, among the list of the sins of the flesh, the works of the flesh, is envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries. And notice, this is important, and the like means I'm not going to mention everything specifically. You're going to have to discern between good and evil. That's our responsibility. And then in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3, he mentions we have spent enough past time doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in drunkenness and revelries. It's the Greek word komos, and it means a carousal as if a, a letting loose. Thayer says it's a nocturnal and, pro, and riotous procession of half-drunken and frolicsome fellows, generally a feast and drinking parties that are protracted till late at night and indulge in revelry. So it's, it's dark, it's loud, it's, it's indulgent, it's where the inhibitions are lowered and you've got that crowd mentality where you're, you're willing to do something that you normally wouldn't because everyone else is doing it. In his word studies on the New Testament, M.R. Vincent says that the word originally signifies mere, merely a merrymaking, but most probably a village festival. In the city, such entertainments grew into carouses in which the party of revelers, revelers paraded into the street with torches, singing, dancing, and all kinds of frolics. He goes on to cite Socrates as describing such as crowds of women he saw once abandoned themselves to demonstrations of frantic excitement with dancing and clamorous invocation of the god describes the modern event of the dance. Go to a dance and the music's loud and, and uh, the, the dress is, is immodest and the lyrics are inciting lust itself and inappropriate for Christians and it's dark and you, you come out of your shell if you go to something like that. That's reveling. That is condemned in Scripture. But even more than that and clearer than that, is the Bible condemnation of lewdness and lust. You notice there in 1 Peter chapter 4 and in verse 3, he also added lewdness and lust. And then in Romans or Galatians 5 and verse 19, he speaks about fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. And then in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 21, he says, Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before God. Uh, and have not repented of uncleanness and fornication and lewdness, which they have practiced. And then Romans 13 and verse 13 again mentions lewdness and lust. We're very familiar with what lust is. It's from the Greek word epithumia, and it means a desire for something forbidden or simply inordinate, craving lust. And so it's not the doing of a thing, but it's looking at a woman to lust after her in my heart. And so the sin is not outward, but it certainly is a sin. And in Matthew 5, Jesus says that you should be willing to even cut out your eye or cut off your hand lest you commit adultery in your heart. There were people who were teaching false things as we were studying this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2. Notice the description of the false teachers in 2 Peter 2, 14. They have eyes full of adultery. Is that acceptable? They're looking. They're thinking. They're not touching. They're not doing anything. Well, I want to tell you they were, but it was because they started lusting first. They were people that could not look anywhere without having adulterous, lustful thoughts. Lusts, something a Christian should avoid. And lewdness, the Greek word asylgia, which is wanton acts or manners, according to Thayer, as filthy words, indecent bodily movements, unchaste handling of males and females. There it is. 
unchaste handling of males and females. What does that describe? Arton Gingrich says it means a lack of self-constraint which involves one in conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable, self-abandonment. Lack of control and self-restraint. Strong just defines it as licentiousness. If you don't know what that word means in the English, Merriam-Webster says it's lacking legal or moral restraints, especially disregarding sexual restraints. And so all the harnesses are off. I'm going to give myself to these things. I want to tell you, there's a Bible progression to this. Lust will lead to lewdness, will lead to fornication. Someone says, I'm not committing fornication. I'm not doing the actual deed with the person. I'm just thinking about it. Or we're, we're, just, we're going to go this far, but we're not going to go all the way, as our culture describes it. But I want to tell you, lust is sinful. And it leads to lewdness, which is a stage in advance of lust. It's action. It is indecent bodily action, unchaste handling of males and females. That's sinful as well. And what that inevitably leads to is fornication. That's what we see in Romans 13 and verse 13. Because he says, let us not walk in lewdness and lust, but he doesn't use the same words. In fact, lust there is the Greek word asylgia. That's describing the unchaste handling of males and females. The indecent bodily movements and actions that, by the way, we see in the modern dance. Lewdness is the Greek word koite, which simply means a couch. And it's a euphemism for sex. It's the, it's the bed. The marriage bed is undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge, Hebrews 13 says. And so it's saying that lewdness, unchaste handling of males and females, that started by lust in the heart, that goes to the bed. That's where it leads. Don't fool yourself. Don't think that what your children may or may not be doing is, is innocent. It leads somewhere. Does the modern dance fit this description of revelry and lewdness and lust? Again, honesty is our policy as Christians. I think it does. You know, in, in Luke chapter 16, I preached on this a while ago, but there's a passage there that says that the sons of this generation are more shrewd in their generation than are the children of light. And there was talking about how they'll, they'll be wise enough to provide for their physical future when sometimes Christians won't even provide for their spiritual future. But I want to tell you that's true as well sometimes with moral principles. The world knows what they're selling and Christians can't see what they're buying. That's a problem. The world is unashamed of it. They're willing to tell us. Sex sells. And that's why we push this kind of dress. That's why we push this kind of, of, of activity. That's why we make movies that have the title like Dirty Dancing. I should tell you something. The world knows it. Do Christians understand it? So I want us to consider some things. Encyclopedia Britannica said about dancing that there is a type of courtship dance. So you're courting someone. For example, allowing the dancers to display their vigor and attractiveness and to engage in socially accepted physical contact between the sexes. And he mentions the waltz, a relatively modern example of the courtship dance that was banned at certain times because its flagrant contact between the dancers was considered indecent. The only thing that's changed is the degradation of the morality of this country. The Bible's true to this day, though. Got to be honest with ourselves. In an article on the website Thrillist, Google, Okay, I don't read Thrillist. I Googled. Thrillist, this man said, or this woman said, in a, an article, by the way, that is, that is titled, 
how dancing makes you a better lover? She says, dance is sex with clothes on. Dancing is a way to show a partner a link to something ancestral, carnal even, through this incendiary and titillating experience, showing our rhythm and ability to dance. We provoke those who watch us. One of the subtitles in that article was, Dancing hides inhibitions way better than alcohol. In dance, she says, we make eye contact, we touch, we use sound to manipulate our bodies and emotions. The same behavior can be transferred to the bedroom with great ease. In an article in Psychology Today titled Sex and Dancing, this man says, and, and he does it, by the way, in a way of, of uh, experience, anecdotal, but also he did some actual um, clinical studies as such in regard to this. But he said, it's no surprise that nightclubs are dark places. This is describing revelry, by the way. They foster feelings of lust, sex, and sometimes when we dance there, we can go through the stages of fancying, loving, fumbling foreplay and intercourse just by making eye contact and holding it with someone on the other side of the dance floor. He gets it. And it's not an article against dancing, by the way. He's promoting it, saying it's a great thing, but he gets it. A professor, Louis J. Guyon, an owner and operator of the Paradise Ballrooms, one of Chicago's largest dance halls, said this, we know that sex is the strongest impulse implanted in the human race. You can just picture the effect on a boy or girl of 18 or 20 when this hunger is keenest, when knowledge and experience are lacking in the formation of judgment of one of these dances, which calls for close bodily contact and frequently brings the cheeks close together and entwine the limbs. Yet we find thousands of boys and girls dancing in this very way who do not realize they are doing anything out of the way and whose full parents look on complacently. I want to I stress that last one. As a parent, it's not your job to be your child's friend and to make them feel in with their friends. It's your job to protect them. And it is not good to just assume that their innocent mind will remain innocent if they go to things like this. He continues, when you are told that youth of both sexes can survive this experience without mental, moral, and physical pollution, you know the teller of lies. If you can believe youth is the same after this experience as before, then God help your child or your charge. You're not mentally fit for your responsibility. If you do not believe I've correctly described, he says, the modern dances and their effect, you have either not seen them performed or you are willfully blind to their true character. Which is it? That's why we started the way we started. You want to be willfully ignorant or will you change? Prom night. There's a reason that it is often cliched with the inclusion of promiscuity. I'm going to go to the prom, and there's always the discussion on sitcoms and, 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 and magazines, like I believe there's a prom magazine and other things about it's your choice. It's your choice whether you're going to give up your virginity tonight. Why? The world knows it. That's what dancing leads to. In the words of a, of a woman of the world, this same behavior can be transferred to the bedroom with great ease. It just, it completely breaks down the barriers. It breaks down the walls. There's a reason we have that kind of cliche in our culture. The world gets it. It's sad to see that some Christians don't. We need to make our changes. Also, dancing is something which, oh, lastly, that's a really good one, actually. I, it's small, and I missed it. 
George Bernard Shaw, an Irish playwright and socialist, once said that dancing is the vertical expression of a horizontal desire legalized by music. If I have to explain it to you, I'll do it afterward. If you're a child and don't know, just ask your parent. We know what it means. That's what dancing is. But it violates other positive principles in the Bible, like the requirement for sobriety and for holiness. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, he says, Gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Rest your hope on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves as in your former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct as it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Be sober, he says. It's nepho, which is literal sobriety. It's an abstaining from intoxication, which tells you that drinking intoxicants itself is sinful. But he says, be sober to be calm and, and collected in spirit is what Thayer defines it as. To be temperate and dispassionate and circumspect. I want to tell you, someone, someone tells you something that challenges you, that suggests you're wrong and you're passionate about that topic, you're liable to boil over. That's passion and we need to have our passions controlled. No different for sexual passions. Can you be dispassionate at a dance? Not with what we just read. Be sober. Focus on hope. It says, have your hope rested fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. 1 John 3 and verse 3 talks about that hope. And it says, he who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. If you hope for heaven, you won't try to justify this practice. You won't get close to it, but as God is holy, you will be holy. It violates the biblical principle of abstaining from every form of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. That word form there means a variety of something, and so it's a type is maybe a better word that we would use. It's a type of evil. Appearance gives the false idea of it. It appears to be evil, so I'm going to just be careful. But that's seen in other places like in Romans chapter 13. Make no provision for the flesh. If you think it might be wrong, don't even go to it. But this is a form of evil. And it's saying there's many different forms of evil. There's murder. There's lying. There's fornication. There's adultery, which is a form of fornication. That's what it's saying. You, it doesn't matter what the world thinks about that particular form of evil, like abortion. It's murder. We know it's a form of evil, so we don't participate in it. That's what it means. And dancing may not be fornication. Dancing may not be some other thing, but it is a form of evil. It is lewdness. It is lust. It is immodest character and behavior. It is indecent. And Paul says abstain from it. A word which means hold yourself constantly back from it. You're not getting close to it. That's why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22, flee also useful lust. Flee them. Don't mess with them. And lastly, the Bible requirement to be salt and light is hindered in the Christian involved in dancing. We're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world where, where they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Would dancing help or hurt your influence with the world on exposing matters of immorality and indecency with the light of Christ? I'm trying to get my friend to understand the need for sexual purity according to the New Testament. But well, we're talking about it at the dance. Does it fit? And you put that in that very verse, that they may see your dancing and glorify God in heaven. Is that what they'll do? Is God glorified by that activity? I don't think so. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 
20 and 21, the Apostle Paul talked about how we went to tremendous lengths to avoid any false conclusions, any funny business. He provided honorable things in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. When we go to a dance, when we involve ourselves in that, would it appear that we're living a holy life and pure life devoted to God? Would there be any question? Would that jeopardize that view at all? Provide honorable things in the sight of not only God, but also men. You know, some will say, I'm not going to the dance to dance, but I'm just going to the dance. Well, would we go to a bar and not drink? If you would, we need to talk. But I think we understand the logic. Lastly, consider some attempts to justify dancing. We'll go through these quickly. I appreciate your kind attention. Someone says, I can dance without lusting. That person is a superman. That's, that's just, I mean, that's as, that's as good as it gets. I, I can dance without lusting. Well, you've got something I don't. And, and we need to understand that and be honest with it. But even if you have that, that audacity to suggest that, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, Paul says, Let him who take, thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's suggesting, yes, I see the potential, but that won't be a problem for me. Well, I'm, I'm getting too close now. In Romans 13 and verse 14, it says, Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. But on top of that, even if you had no danger whatsoever of lusting when you go to a dance and involve yourself in it, what about people that are there? In Romans chapter 13 and in verse 8, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. And then he says in verse 10, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, I think that Speaking from experience in my immaturity of youth, I might have tried to convince myself at times of the fact that, well, they're lost already. So what am I adding to it? Well, sin is just continually destroying their soul. So you may have that thought, oh, it's not my problem what they're thinking for one, but two, they're already lost. So what's the harm? That's not love, brethren. We want them out of that. You cannot dance and ensure that yourself is going to not lust, but you certainly can't ensure that someone else won't lust. Someone may say it's socially accepted. The world doesn't have a problem with it. They, they glorify it. Well, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Someone may say, well, my son or my daughter really wants to go to this dance, and I'm telling them they're not going to dance because that's wrong, but, but they're going to be ousted with their friends. They are going to be a pariah. And so I'm going to let them go. But 1 Peter 4 says we really shouldn't care what others think. They think it's strange that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Yeah, they'll, they'll speak evil of you. You know, it's better that they learn about being treated with hatred like their Lord while they're under your house and you can encourage them through it and build up their endurance and resistance to the world than when they're in the world and now they're going to give in because they didn't have that resistance built up with mom and dad. If you love them, you'll explain to them why this is a necessary sacrifice and you'll help them make it. Some may say, I'm only attending the dance, but I don't intend to do any dancing myself. Again, can you go to a place that inherently is paired with immorality and sin inseparably linked to it? Like a bar and alcohol is dancing in lewdness and lust. Can you go to a place that has inherently within its very characteristics and design, sinful practice, and not be linked in with the world as condoning it. Doesn't matter if you're not dancing. 
Someone may not know that. They see you sitting over there, but they think you're taking a break because you just tore it up on the dance floor. How else are they going to know? You can't ensure that. If you aren't going to a dance because you know what's wrong, or, or if you aren't going to a dance because you know what's wrong, or to dance because you know what's wrong, I'm reading off my outline right here, then why would you want to go to the dance in the first place? I'm going to go to the dance, but I'm not going to dance because it's wrong. Why are you even there? We got to be consistent. And lastly, someone may say, well, I only go to chaperone dances. Well, you're telling on yourself <laughs> because it shouldn't need a chaperone if there's nothing wrong with it. You ever heard of a chaperone Bible study? Someone said in an article I, I read, chaperoned unrighteousness is still unrighteousness. That should tell you something. I know I've said lastly a few times, we won't go to these scriptures, but I just want to show you that you know it by its fruits. Throughout human history, on into today, including dances at schools where alcohol is not accepted, dancing is associated with drinking, certainly associated with profane music, it's certainly associated with immodesty. I dare you to find a prom dress, not just a dress that someone will wear to a prom, but it is a prom dress that is modest. With lust, And sexual immorality, you'll know them by their fruits. Some will still eat the bitter fruit, though, because they've convinced themselves it won't kill them. Genesis chapter 3. Go read it. We need to be honest with ourselves. Dancing is not something that is a Christian activity. We should not be involved in it. We shouldn't tolerate it. We should teach our children, frankly, about it. You know... Things like sexual immorality and lust and those kinds of feelings, it's uncomfortable to talk about, but I'm telling you right now, I'd rather that we as parents talk to our kids about it and the things that are associated with it than let them discover it themselves through the lens of the world. We need to talk about it, brethren. We need to have the courage, as fathers especially, to put a stop to it because our souls and the souls of our children and our brethren depend upon it. I know that this lesson has been a little long. What's new? And I know that it hasn't dealt with matters pertaining to how we're saved. So we do want to offer an invitation this afternoon for anyone who has not obeyed the gospel to do so before it's everlastingly too late. Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. And the waters of baptism are ready for you behind me if we can assist you in that. There may be some other spiritual thing that we can assist you with this afternoon. We invite you to come forward as well while we stand and sing.